Cinema Duel, a podcast where my friend Chris and myself, John, talk about a couple of movies around a theme of our choosing. Chris, how are you today? I'm doing good, John. How are you today? I'm doing all right. And once again, we have ourselves a guest, so it's going to be a thruple of movies we're talking about today. Uh, joining us uh, from monophonic shooting spree from the immerse box podcast from vip which as of uh, today released uh has three eps under our belts thing eric Hyder, how you doing sir i'm doing fine thank you are there any other credits you want us to mention because i feel like those are the that's what's currently popping i would say that the before i would mention well immerse box is the the ongoing nightmare that i signed myself up for uh <laughs> But I also have a uh, cassette slash CD label called Philip K. Discs that I do with my friend, our friend, Jeremy Hunt. And um, I also have a band called Heplad with my buddy, David Lee Price. That Those are uh, two things that I definitely knew about and for some reason couldn't immediately bring them to mind. But yes, two very good things as well. Um our theme for today is the Marx Brothers, and I did have to do some Googling to see if somehow they were related to other notable Marxes in history, and apparently not. But Eric, you wanted to talk about the Marx Brothers. Why the Marx Brothers? Well, I can I cannot remember a time that I didn't know the Marx Brothers, that they weren't a part of my life. As a small child, I got introduced to them by my mom. And then in, uh, I don't know, it must have been like nine or 10 when we first moved to New Hampshire. They were on the, you could see all of their movies at various times on Channel 38 out of Boston. Channel 38 had a movie program called The Movie Loft. And it was on every night of the week, unless there was a Bruins game or a Red Sox game. And they would show classic movies and would give you, there was a host and the host would give you sort of introductory information, fill in some biographical stuff. And it exposed me to, to pretty much all of the older movies that I loved, but particularly the Marx Brothers. They stuck in my head the wordplay, the surrealist uh, almost psychedelic humor that I did, you know, I just didn't understand the absurdity of the whole thing. And kids pick up on the physicality, the harpo ness. And then as I, as I got older and I started picking up on the wordplay of, you know, Chico and, and Groucho and the presence of Zeppo for no apparent reason. <laughs> that was, they just became a thing that I always have carried with me over the years. So, you know, it's really, I think I probably got been a Barks Brothers fan for 40 years. I like that we are, even within this intro before getting into our movie picks, are talking about placing importance on our which uh, brothers we like best because I definitely feel like uh, Zeppo is probably, like, does anyone stand for Zeppo or is he everyone's least favorite? Well, to be fair, I mean, Zeppo... <laughs> Zeppo never really wanted to be part of the group, and we could kind of talk through that as we go through the history. He was a very successful real estate guy, and uh, the, the Marx Brothers really, didn't, if, if, if you think about um, acting families, they were really the first kind of um, 
child stars in the in the modern sense of having incredibly overbearing parents that kind of had the whip and the lash to ensure that nothing would impede the success of their amazing children. So, I, I mean, there was right uh, five Marx Brothers. There's and we will argue this. I've always been Chico versus Chico, but uh, Chico, Harpo, Groucho, uh, Zeppo and Gummo, who was the original kind of fourth Marx brother. And when he kind of sailed away to the seven seas, um, Zeppo was kind of ushered into the group kind of against his will by Minnie and Frenchie, who were the senior Marx parents. And I mean, you, you got to feel for the guy, although I'm going to give him short shrift in, in uh, the two of the films that he appears in here, because this is a guy who definitely was playing second fiddle to his brothers and uh, clearly didn't was looking for something other than what he was doing. And yet I think, well, and not to, I guess we should probably head to our first movie pretty soon, but it seems that there is someone who fulfills the straight man uh, function in a lot of these movies that I'd be curious if they, if that could have been Zeppo to, to do that, but instead they, they have other people that they work with to, uh, to bounce off of, but let's not, uh, Let's not uh, be vague about it anymore. Let's get into our first movie. Hello? I must be going. I cannot say I came to say I must be going. I'm glad I came, but just the same, I must be going. La la. For my sake, you must stay. If you should go away, you spoil this party. I am through. I'll stay a week or two. I'll stay the summer through. But I am telling you, I must be. Which is 1930s Animal Crackers. Chris, I believe this was your pick, and why don't you uh, why don't you get us started? It was so. Real briefly, let me talk about my intro to the Marx Brothers. Um, if uh, you were around during this time, there was always the argument when it came to music. You know, the the holy trinity of bands. You were either a Beatles person, a Rolling Stones person, or a Who person. So I kind of equated the same thing to the the comedy troops of the '30s. You were either a um, Three Stooges person, you were a Laurel and Hardy person, or you were a Marx Brothers person. And again, you can stretch that out to uh, the quadrilogy, if you want to use that term, of Abbott and Costello, though I usually kind of put them a little bit further um, up the road a ways. I was always a Laurel and Hardy person because I really enjoyed kind of the sweetness mixed with physical comedy. Um, that was until I saw this movie, which is Animal Crackers. This was my first exposure to the Marx Brothers. And immediately, the, the verbal wit mixed with the slap and anarchy that was on display in this film completely took me for a ride really quickly because the plot makes no sense the thing to really know about animal crackers is this was based on a 1928 broadway musical that that the marx brothers were in as well um this is this is at that kind of that interesting time when film is just starting to kind of understand what it is as a formal structure at least within the holly the hollywood studio experience so when you have something like at Animal Crackers, which is lifted from a Broadway musical, it still plays very much like theater. People are talking to the camera. Um, uh, the the camera work itself is very stationary at times. And despite that, it allows you to kind of delve into um, the real anarchy of what the Marx Brothers were all about. You're not getting into, well, we have to have a Hollywood plot that you'll see in some of the later films. This could still be very much what it is and, and a, an, an undistilled look at the craziness of these brothers. So very briefly, um, it is about a uh, socialite 
Mrs. Rittenhouse, who um, is inviting Captain Spaulding just back from Africa, played by Groucho. Um, she is slightly infatuated with him, as she is in every single film, because I would argue that the true fourth Marx brother is not, in fact, Zeppo, but is Margaret Dumont, one of my favorite people in all of these films. She has invited Groucho uh, to come to her house. At the same time, uh, a very famous art patron is going to unveil um, a, a beautiful painting by Bogard, and he is going to show that. So really what the film is about is what happens when the Bogard is actually stolen and replaced with... Um, with a cheap imitation or is it a cheap imitation is it a very good imitation because there are actually two copies there's a lot of mix-ups and match-ups going on at the same time you have chico and harpo coming in as the musical um band for the show or for the uh, house during the the party they are in fact they are musicians, but they are also con artists. They are purely there to wreak havoc and cause anarchy. I think this movie holds more than any other Marx Brothers movie. This holds everything that I hold dear about the Marx Brothers. It has Groucho being Groucho uh, to the fullest extent possible. He is he is um, a, a, a mooch, an unapologetic mooch. He is a verbal razor. You have the complete and utter anarchy of Harpo, who is merely introduced as the professor and has no role other than to cause the utmost chaos. Among things, you have Chico, uh, who does an incredible piano routine. Harpo does his harp routine. So you have all the music, you have all the slapstick, you have all the verbal wit wrapped up in a piece of fluff that really doesn't matter. Plot is not the point of this film. The point of this film is just to show off how finely tuned these people are to the ear of comedy, whether it is slapstick, um, verbal kind of dueling, um, or anything in between. Um, and it's for that reason that even though it is my first and I've seen many other Marx Brothers since then, it is still my absolute favorite. <laughs> yeah, I think that uh, when it comes to the plot, I had... I completely blanked on what I had just watched almost a day or two after I had seen it in terms of trying to remember what happens in the movie. I <laughs> it is so entirely incidental to everything else that goes on. And I think when we talked, did the film noir episode where we traded back and forth, some of our favorite lines in a, from movies in a genre that does dialogue really well. I think this easily without any effort could just turn into uh, us trading back and forth, our favorite bits uh, from this movie. And I I've I waver personally between Groucho's sort of scathing wit um, and Harpo's just f like physical. He's just doing shit and he's not talking and doesn't really exist. But like I kind of like. I think most days I actually think that or well most days the last week or two i think most days i land on harpo as being my personal favorite because he's not saying anything mean he's just being weird like that scene when he uh when he gets introduced in this movie and his coat gets taken off he's just wearing underwear and he grabs a gun <laughs> and starts shooting people which like if you're trying to engage it with any sort of reality is actually like horrifying to think about but it's just i mean it's obviously so silly and so slapsticky that well and he's not even just shooting people right he shoots statues who then go and shoot back i mean this is that type of movie that is completely untethered from reality and kind of revels in it 
Um, we tried to do this intro before and my computer crapped out. Uh, so I'm going to take the moment to kind of jump back in again, just talking about some of the best moments. Um, speaking about Harpo, it, it, we'll talk about his role in the other two films, but this is the one role where he really is nothing but an agent of chaos. We'll, we'll talk about the other two, and, and he ostensibly has a role and a performance to play. Here he is. He does nothing except just create havoc. Uh, he has one of the greatest bits that, as a kid, I did for so long in, 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 in junior high and, and, and in high school. It failed utterly, but he has this shtick where... He constantly will take someone's hand or a hat, as we'll see in the later film, and he'll throw his leg on onto them and just kind of hook his leg into people's hands. And it just makes no sense, but it just brings me so much joy. He steals a woman's shoes during a game of bridge. We, we talked earlier about kind of before we started recording some of our favorite scenes and Animal Crackers has a scene where Chico and Harpo um, attempt to scam two women out of money playing bridge. And it is the most insane bridge game I have ever seen. Chico's facility with language, as someone who ostensibly can't speak English very well, he is brutally brilliant at mixing the language just so, so that everything comes out in his favor when it comes to, you got to play a trump. Oh, you can't play that card. That card's a no good. I'm going to play this trump. And then he and Harpo obviously clean up to the point where he steals a pair of, pair of shoes that the woman is wearing at the end. It's it's just, it, it's anarchy at, at its most fun. And I, I can't get enough of it. Chico's accent, that was supposed... Did I read correctly that that was actually like a, a put on that he doesn't actually have like that that was just something he used to and try and intimidate people or is that uh, or or is that just something I made up? Yeah, no, all the accents that they do, all the voices that they do are complete put ons. Uh, like, well, and they're consistent throughout the movies too, right? Well, right, and and one of the great jokes in this, like a little mild joke, is when they figure out that the guy who owns the Bogard is the the fishmonger that they used to know. And they're like, hey, be the fishmonger. Hey, be the fishmonger. <laughs> and and he's like, the guy looks at him and goes, when did you become Italian? And he's like, uh, another time. Like, yeah, not, not today. Like, I'm not telling you that story. But it's just that moment of like, wait a minute. And it was a, a little nod to the fact that they were basically putting on these absurd characters that they became known for. But they you can see there's footage of them like sitting around and doing interviews and stuff where they're not doing the voices where Harpo talks, where, <laughs> where Groucho isn't in the face paint, you know, and then Groucho is of course is the only one that had a, a long career where people knew him outside of the grease paint on uh, you bet your life all those years. Yeah. Yeah. You bet your life. But, and, and that's one of the other things that makes this movie so interesting, kind of bridging between theater and film. There are great moments where Groucho plays right to the audience, right? And, and he, he breaks the fourth wall constantly when he goes into these crazy soliloquies that in, in that time and place, he would be speaking to the audience in the theater and he does it to the camera here. Um, it, it, and it just, it just serves to kind of break rules that, not even five years later, because we'll see it when we talk about the third film, have become so rigid that you just don't do that. And it would take another, you know, 30, 40 years until the 60s and 70s where that kind of became commonplace again to go ahead and break those walls down. Well, yeah, I mean, he makes fun of a O'Neill play in the middle of the in the middle of the performance. He starts doing <laughs> the he's basically doing a riff on Strange Interludes, which was an uh, O'Neill play that 
would have been familiar to the theater audience in 1928, where the characters constantly are turning to the audience to explain their inner monologues, their inner dialogues. And then they turn back and the, the other characters in the scene have not are not aware of this moment, this breaking of the fourth wall. And he does it in the film, which is like, here's this joke that 80 years, 90 years later, it doesn't fly at all because no, but that's not one of O'Neill's like, you know, well-known pieces, but it still works within the context of the film because what he says is so absurd and funny that you don't need to know the reference point. You don't need to know the reference to flagpole sitters to get that he's making fun of that stuff even though that fad was dead by the time the movie came out. Those those reference points, those drawing on these things that are very specific to 1928 when this was done on, on Broadway, they don't detract that they filmed those sections. It still works, but it works because of their delivery, not because of what they're delivering. Yeah. Yeah, I would say something I noticed... Uh... I mean, this was an observation for the next one, but we can, we're already here. So it's, it's an interesting mix of stuff that completely goes over your head because we are not incredibly old. And then the jokes that work regardless of context, like it's a, it's a combination of like hyper specifically dated things that even our parents wouldn't know versus uh, stuff that, oh, I could show this to my kids and they would find it funny. Right. And, and and they move through material so quickly that even if you're missing a lot of jokes, you're hitting just as many as you miss. And so it's it 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 never feels like it suffers or that you're sort of out of time for it, right? No, I think that's one of one of their their great gifts is that they could be incredibly topical and yet incredibly funny in a timeless kind of way. Like it, it doesn't matter the reference points they're making because they're just funny human beings yeah i would like to bring up some a couple of things here that become themes uh that are very important to the marx brothers and we will i'll bring them up now so that when we talk about them later the reference points will make sense you brought up the 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 leg holding that harpo does yeah that is a becomes a characteristic of him that the audiences expect him to do it becomes a little like signature thing it's it's the must it's groucho's mustache right like it's right it's the same sort of thing the straight love stories that run through most of the marx brothers films that are god awful this the characters that are not the marx brothers that are like here's this oh this couple and they have to do this thing and if they don't do this they're going to be broke and they're god awful and in every single Marx Brothers film. Yeah, and, and it's literally almost the plot of every single Marx Brothers film. Right, it's, it's, it's the... <laughs> or the B-plot. Right, it's the, the horrible framework that they put the Marx Brothers' clothes on. Uh, but one of the things that they do from the very beginning here, and they do it again, we'll, we'll see it in Duck Soup, we'll see it in Day of the Races, is the way they use repetition as comet to, to get comedic, points across is something that you when I look at like a Chaplin film or a Buster Keaton film or the the generation right before them they're not they're those comedians generally don't play with that kind of repetition that something becomes funny if you repeat it enough times so like 
when they do Hooray for Captain Spaulding, it just keeps going on to the point where he does it for himself. Well, he's like, well, somebody has to do it, right? Because it's gone on so long that you're kind of uncomfortable and you start, it's that squirmy humor. Yeah. And they use that a lot. I mean, we, we, we'll see it in Duck Soup. We'll see it in these other We're going to see a lot of animal crackers in Duck Soup. It's, it's surprising watching the two together. And I don't want to jump to that, that film yet, but it's surprising how much is the same between the two movies. Right down to, to Eric the gag you're talking about with, you know, the, the intro to the Groucho character going on forever. Right. Until he kind of breaks that monotony in, in this film, he does it by singing it himself. He does it differently in Duck Soup, but th- there are th- I, I I I totally see that, and I to- and that's that's actually one of the things that I want to talk about when we get to the later films is um, one of the things that constantly runs through and that I have always loved about the Marx Brothers is the, the those love stories are are simply terrible those those terrible B plots that feel so shoehorned in the one love plot that never feels shoehorned in um, and works because of the repetition from seeing it not only within one film but from film after film after film is Margaret Dumont's love for Groucho Marx right and 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 how he how he rebuffs it how he uses it to his advantage and how it is ultimately spurned um, until we get to the last film we're going to talk about. And, and and that, more than anything else in the three films that we watch, really threw me for the loop. But, um, you know, some things are, some things repeat until they become tiresome. The, the one thing that will never fail for me is, is for the most part, until we talk about the last film, Dumont's undying love, whether it's for um, Captain Spaulding or for Rufus Firefly or for um, Hackenbush, as we'll talk about in our later film. She just she is an, an unsung treasure for these these films. I think that was probably my biggest takeaway from from watching these movies was actually Margaret, uh, Margaret Dumont uh, in the same way that like. If you watch polls of best Star Trek movies, you'll see people try to vote in Galaxy Quest. I actually might make the argument that although, mo- like for official Marx Brothers, I think mine might be Harpo. I think Margaret Dumont. I, I would want a strong write-in vote campaign for her. She like, oh, I think all of their madness and their zany antics only like they work and they're really smart but like having them sort of crash up against her uh her sort of like normal like she plays the straight man in this in that sense of that term of like she's the person she's the somewhat normal person trying to react against these idiots and it's because of her sort of steadfastness and how she plays that character or her character in each of these movies it's a similar kind of character but it it always works because yes she's in love she's often in love with uh with groucho's characters but he's so mean and cruel to her constantly and she just seems completely unaffected by it like you can see her break there's a couple times when you can kind of see her like almost uh crack um but but for the most part i always got the impression that she was just sort of like almost above his sort of flying above his insults and sort of just sort of letting them pass her by and not uh not be affected by her i thought i thought she was a champ uh, she's the best it's their relationship is like crazy and ignatz in crazy cat mm. the old george harriman comics where ignatz throws a brick and crazy cats hits crazy cat in the head and crazy cat's like it's love <laughs> It's very much that same sort of relationship. 
again, like the repetition, I just, before we go on, uh, because we do need to go, I like that even the, that Chico's piano playing pulls on that same joke that he can't figure out what the ending is. Yes. Like, I thought I, I thought I was going to get it this time. <laughs> like, as he just keeps playing that same. Not being able to find the ending can't there. There can be no better ending to at least this segment than right. kind of ending on that segment. Yes. Baby. I must be <laughs> going. going. If any form of pleasure is exhibited, report to me and it will be prohibited. I'll put my foot down. So shall it be. This is the land of the free. The last man nearly ruined this place. He didn't know what to do with it. If you think this country's bad off now, just wait till I get through with it. Our second movie is 1933's Duck Soup, which was my pick. And, I mean... This is my Mark's story, which is that around the time that I was starting to watch movies more intentionally, I found a AFI list of 100 greatest movies and Duck Soup was on it. So I found a cheap DVD copy and watched it and I loved it. There's not really actually a lot to it, but I remember the thing I remember taking away from it at the time, and we talked about it a bit in the previous section, was how much of it I was able to follow because comedy does often end up becoming fairly dated. And I was I was surprised at the time of how much I was able to track with it, regardless of how fast it moved through everything. What surprises me, though, in this particular rewatching of it, and I watched it a couple times to get ready for here, was actually how much I did still miss and specifically i think it was the joke about the headstrongs meeting the marrying the armstrongs and that's how you get the darkies and yes i don't think we need to dwell on it but at the time when i watched the first time i totally didn't catch that and then the and then rewatching it then i was like oh is that is that what i think it is and then i googled it and okay sure i don't want to it's it's a bummer to almost have to start on that note but and this is has nothing this i don't think this is a fault of the movie but because of the distance uh culturally i'm just now paranoid that like what other like anytime i go and watch movies of you know that go back this far like what things am i just not missing because or am i not catching because i actually don't know the lingo that they were using is there any stuff where you go where you look up a reference that they made and go oh dear god um that was the first one that i really remember yeah. Even they're often making a lot of very broad vaudeville stereotypes about race in general, because there's also not in this one, but in some of the other ones, there's some Jewish stuff. There's Chico, Chico's Italian character. There's, yeah. I mean, yeah. there, there's going to be something that we're going to talk about when we talk about Day of the Races. I okay yeah I I don't want to spoil it but that was definitely I Very was thinking much, about yes. I was thinking about this that scene while talking about this joke I was like yeah I I don't know I honestly don't know what to make of that well very much like so Eric was talking before about I mean I mean one of the things that the Marx Brothers always did was quote what was popular at the time they were the the movies were very current so just like um the 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 strange interludes that he does in in animal crackers the the darky reference is is from i i believe a a song that was very popular at a time and he kind of juxtaposes it with the joke um ostensibly to kind of make fun of the reference i i'm not going to go into whether it's intentionally 
racist or not. It, it, it certainly, listening to it now, it certainly is in bad humor, as is something that we'll talk about on the next film. But, I mean, I mean the, the, that was part and parcel with these, especially with the early Paramount films, was the commentary on what was popular at the time of the release. They're, they're constantly calling those things out. Well, and yeah. this is, and it's definitely not like birth of a nation or anything. Like it, this is definitely not about that. In those cases where everything moves really quickly, and then I'm like, oh, I'm feeling really good about how I am being able to sort of understand what's going on, mm. and then later being like, oh no, wait, I really didn't. <laughs> well, I mean, at the end of this film, or near the end of the film, when they have the whole going to war musical sequence, which is basically a minstrel show. Yeah, yeah, it's. You know, they don't break into blackface, but otherwise, that's a minstrel show. And it's part of the vaudeville tradition that they came up with. As you said, they were literally child stars. They were on vaudeville in the early single digits or teens. Yeah. You know, so they're, you know, 20 years old. They were part of that tradition and for good and for bad. Yeah, that's something to, to, to kind of mention. They're in their 40s at this point, making these movies in 1930 and in 1933. So they had been in the business for years before these things had come out. Yeah. In, 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 in vaudeville and, and, and on the, the stage. Well, and, and, and if we can, uh, having successfully discussed uh, one of the uh, crazier parts of this movie, let me now pivot to the plot of this film, uh, which is that a wealthy... Uh, a, a wealthy person uh, threatens uh, a country. Well, it's presented much more lighthearted than this, but essentially a rich lady says, I will give you the money to bail you out of your financial crisis if you install my preferred person as president. And I thought to myself on second rewatch, not the first, uh, holy shit, that's... and Because it, it's not even... Tr- it's, again, like... This is this movie I remember people talking about as being like a satire of Mussolini and like there was some, you know, the political content was made it like extra dangerous. But like it is something that is like pretty wild and pretty, you know, feeling relevant at the time. But it is only the premise for all of the humor that we've been watching in the last movie. Like it is it's like here's this thing that actually sounds terrible and horrifying but ah we're just gonna do a bunch of you know slapstick jokes that to me was my big takeaway from this one was wow that plot is real wild in in contrast to animal crackers which i couldn't remember the second after i I stopped watching it the jokes were great but not the plot the the plot here (laughs) i was like wow this 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 one somehow ended up being much much different Despite being actually very similar, because again, all you care about are the jokes. Yeah, you know, I I don't know how different it is. So so, keep in mind your synopsis of the film when we talk about the next film, because this film is about a rich woman who says, "I will save you, country," or we'll talk about later, mental institution, if you install the person that I want to be the head of the country or mental institution i mean chris, it, it is literally almost the same plot chris you chris i i don't mean to under to underscore this you are literally blowing my mind right now because holy shit you're right <laughs> holy hell 
and <laughs> I mean, that being said, the, the thing that really blew my mind about Duck Soup on this watching, watching it after Animal Crackers, is how much is lifted from Animal Crackers, how much of that repetition comes into play here. It's only three years later, um, and how much of this will then go to inform the later films, especially the last film we'll talk about. That being said there's still some really inspired moments. You start to get a little bit more of this thing works as a film, particularly because it's directed by Leo McCary, um, who's done a lot of really great films. The awful truth is a fantastic, fantastic, fantastic comedy with Cary Grant that I, high, that I highly recommend. He also did a fair to remember with Cary Grant, which I don't recommend nearly as much, but you're starting to see the, the Marx brothers get into a movie as opposed to kind of filming a stage play. And, I actually think as, as highly rated as Duck Soup is, I think it suffers a little bit from that. Things are a little bit toned down. Harpo has a bit of a role this time. I mean, granted, he's like a spy, um, but it, it, he doesn't feel as unleashed as he is in the earlier films. That being said, this probably has one of the most famous Marx Brothers sequences ever in the mirror scene, but I, I would even argue there... The, the best part of the mirror sequence is what comes before the mirror sequence when you actually have um, Harpo Chico and Groucho. And this is one of the things that I freaking love. They look so much alike when they are all dressed up as Groucho. Um, you kind of get Harpo because Harpo does his crazy eyes, but they, I mean, you could not do this if you didn't have brothers that looked like these guys do. But the whole piece where they're they're hiding under the bed, they're they're trying to steal the, the plans for war, um, and it, it's constantly at one second it's Harpo, then Chico jumps from under the bed and takes his place, and then Groucho walks in the door. I, that to me is is just impeccable comedic timing, much more so than the mirror scene, which is hilarious, but really kind of comes it to its own the more ridiculous it, it 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 gets toward the end of that sequence you mean like when they switch uh when they switch places in the mirror when they switch places and when it's all three of them and yeah. when you can clearly see that he's looking and one guy's got a harpo's got a top hat but he's got a white kind of <laughs> of uh, wicker hat it i mean it, once it hits that level and they and it, it, it it's the whole repetition thing eric that you, you said before a normal gag would end there but they keep going and they keep pretending that they're fooling each other for like another full minute. And that last minute is what makes the bit hilarious. Right. Because normally you would have ended with when Groucho does the spin and Harpo just goes, ta-da. Like he just does jazz hands when Groucho like does a full spin. He doesn't do anything. He just stands there. That's the moment that would have been the payoff for most comedy sequences like but there's at least another minute or two after that like they just were like this is a great little we'll get everybody to laugh here they'll calm down and we'll nail them again and yeah it's it is the the repetition there's but i want to jump back a second you were talking about how harpo is less a uh sort of anarchic spirit in this Harpo's a malicious prick in this movie in a way that he's not in either of the other two movies that we're going to talk about. Like the lemonade, the lemonade sequence. He is just a complete prick to that guy over and over and over to the point where he like takes off his shoes and jumps in the lemonade. Like he, he's just a prick to that guy. He ends up like 
trying to make it with that guy's wife. He ends up in the bathtub with him at the end of the movie. He's a complete prick to that guy. The multiple motorcycle sequences. It's just him being a prick. Like there's something kind of magical about his. He goes from like um, an anarchic spirit to a very puckish one. And I mean that in a very Shakespearean puckish, you know, playing the games with people, knowing exactly what he's doing. He's much more calculated in this. And I think that's one of the little magical bits that he pulls off in this movie that that makes it my favorite Harpo performance. Like, this is a Harpo movie. Chico isn't particularly great in this movie. You know, it's funny. This is the first time I kind of thought about it in that kind of puckish Shakespearean way that that's that's it is a fundamentally different role for him in this. And uh, thinking about it that way, that kind of changes the film for me a little bit in a better way. I didn't think about it that way. We're just blowing each other's minds left and right. Minds are being blown. (laughs) Although, so so I, you know what? So part of it for me, I I am not a huge fan of malicious humor. And and, and I think that's still what holds it back for me is that he is so like, like the joke with the motorcycle gags are, you know, kind of funny, but (laughs) he just, that poor lemonade vendor, when he just, the whole thing with the hat exchange, when he lights his hats on fire, there's something spiteful and hateful about it that just kind of doesn't sit as well as the pure kind of, I'm an agent of chaos of the earlier film. It definitely sits better with me than what they turn Harpo into in the next film that we're going to talk about. Um, but now I got to go watch duck soup again because I, I need to look at it through that lens and see if it changes for me. I remember them being jerks to the, to that vendor and like the things that they do to him successively. But now that I think about it, is there a reason given why they're such an asshole, uh, such assholes to that guy? Or is it just for fun? It's just for fun. It's just for fun. fun? Okay. Yeah. I mean, they're complete jerks to the, to the ambassador as well, or the. Yeah, the the guy from Sylvania, right. like they're complete, but they're they're ostensibly working for him until the end of the movie. They're jerks to Groucho as well. Yeah, they're they're pretty much jerks in this movie, but Harpo in particular is is mean in yeah. a way that he's not in other Marx Brothers films. Where I mean, he's a kind of like a crazy womanizing like sadder figure in Animal Crackers, and he's there's none of that here. No. Like not, I mean. Yes, he does stop multiple times on his Paul Revere ride to uh, try to get a Paul Revere ride. But (laughs) (laughs) well, can we talk about that one scene for a second? So my understanding was so there's the scene that you alluded to where he tries to sleep with the lemonade vendor's wife. But then there's the other scene where he and the horse go into the house. (laughs) And then in this time, Code the, I don't know if, if the Hayes Code was in effect here or, or not, but they, they had the code where you couldn't have a man and a woman sleeping in the same bed. But there was no rule that said that a man couldn't sleep with a horse in the bed, which birthed that incredible scene where you just see, and again, Leo McCary has a little bit more tact with the camera, so you just see that pan of Harpo's shoes, the woman's shoes, and the, the horse shoes, and then the cut to the two of them in the bed, and it's just wonderful. 
And it like Airbud, you know, there's no rule that says a dog can't play basketball. <laughs> exactly. Is, there is no that is absolutely true. And now we have brought Airbud into this conversation. Oh, you know, I'm just trying to, you know, bring more bring a bring in that uh, huge huge Airbud fan base. I'm sure they're there. I'm sure they're there. The only other thing I wanted to add was the the fun little brother to me of animal crackers, except for that end, which as as minstrel as it is, and I've read kind of um, a, a, a few of the same articles that that, that kind of talks about that that history and how that war plays out. I still think it's an incredible sequence. I I, I think that more than anything else in, in the film lifts this up, where you have. Every other scene, Groucho is in a different costume. He's in a Daniel Boone outfit at one point or, or a Davy Crockett outfit. He's wearing a Napoleon outfit. He's wearing a, a Civil War outfit. Um, the, 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 the whole f- fruit throwing scene that kind of closes the, the film out on a really anarchic spirit um, that, that, that just hits the movie with a bang. I, I, I think they nail the ending in a way that they don't in some of the other films animal crackers as much as i love it it the ending is literally just a oh here's the painting we found it and then harpo essentially um roofies every single person in the house and then lays down next to a woman um so again problematic stuff does occur in all these films but in duck soup i i think they nail the landing in a way that they don't in their other films i really like the ending goof of like the the sylvania guys surrendering and they start throwing food at our fruit at him and then margaret dumont starts singing and they ch- they turn around <laughs> and throw fruit, fruit at her instead it's a great ending it's the tightest ending they have in any of their films i think so yeah well when plot is so uh not required uh or ba- barely considered then it you know what's an yeah. ending right well the movie that has i don't know 20 percent of a plot is the movie that everybody talks about, which is Duck Soup. It yeah. it has the the strongest framework. The jokes are primarily built around theoretical plot points. They're not they're not like oh, and it's not like there's a section that just says Harpo does something goofy, which it absolutely feels like in all the other movies. It's like something happens, you know, like that. The script just says they the Marx Brothers marks something. And this one doesn't feel like, I mean, they've trimmed all of that fat out to the detriment of there is no musical numbers. We do not get a Chico piano piece. Yeah. We do not get a Harpo harp piece. And that is the one failing to me of Duck Soup because those are essential moments. We get the one moment where um, I think for a brief second, Harpo tries to play the piano like a harp which will actually come to play in the next film a little bit more explicitly. Yeah, but yeah, it, it does lack that. But at the same time, this is certainly the tightest Marx Brothers film. I, I, I think it might be the shortest. I'm not sure. It's an hour eight, I think. So Hour and eight, eight minutes. I mean, it really just kind of cuts to the chase, right? They've trimmed all the fat. One thing I will add before we go. So just talking about things that... Uh, we pull from these films. I, 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 I pull so much from movies and incorporate it into my life. And I think this was the movie where Groucho, they all kind of blur together. I watched all, all three of them in the last 24 hours again, just to kind of be, be freshened up. But one of the things I do incessantly, like as a kid, I would do the, the leg hook thing is, uh, 
whenever Groucho says to Margaret Dumont, can't you see what I'm trying to tell you? I love you. I say that to my wife. I love you. I I, love you. you. Don't you see? I love you. Married. I can see you right now in the kitchen bending over a hot stove. But I can't see the stove. Just, I, I, I mean, the way that he plays with, with, with Dumont is just is simply lovely. And uh, and I can't get enough of it. A couple of days ago, uh, I sent you a text message, Chris, that it was completely, like, apropos of nothing. But I had this thought of the way in which the Marx Brothers sort of bounce off the, the rest of the characters in their movies, and specifically Margaret Dumont, felt almost a bit like the uh my brother my brother and me tv show this the show specifically because they are sort of taken out of the context of just being them and actually have to interact with other people in the real world most of whom think that they're a bunch of idiots at the time i was like oh that might not be as maybe that wasn't a good comparison and then i actually found a tweet from mcelroy friend and famous person lin-manuel miranda who basically compared the mayor of Huntington, West Virginia to Margaret Dumont. And I was like, oh, cool, great. Like I'm 100% right with that comparison. It is uh, watching idiots uh, be sort of looked down upon by normal people is, is a lot of fun. You need someone who is really strong to kind of bounce stuff that hard off of. Yeah. And Dumont is one of the few people who could do it. I would argue, and I... I already closed down the tab. I think it's Edward Kennedy who plays the lemonade vendor. You know, same thing. He has a very small role, but you you don't make that those sequences work if you don't have a guy who can really kind of have that stuff bounce off and react to. And I think he does that in spades. Uh, And I think it's one of the things that we'll talk about in our next film in a second that that slightly suffers because Margaret Dumont aside, um, you don't have that same type of characterization for some of the more zanier moments. Let's expand on that uh, right now by moving on to our last the movie. Sun descending has brought to you no happy ending, but you can face the setting sun and say. film for the evening is 1937's a day at the races eric this was your pick why don't you get us started okay i chose this not because it's my favorite marx brothers film i can't say i have a favorite marx brothers film i like I say, too that, ma- that just begs the question which is is not it is none of the movies after this and it is not coconuts that's all I can tell you. So anything they did between 30 and 37, depending on the time of day, depending on the day of the week, depending on my mood, just at that exact moment, that's my favorite Marx Brothers. But I felt it was important if we were going to have two of the RKO movies to have one of the two big budget MGM films. And I chose Day at the Races for two reasons. One, Gary <laughs> And I, we're going to have a long talk about Tootsie Fruitsie ice cream. And two, the whole black slum outside the sanitarium sequence. Yep. I feel like it's something that needs to be acknowledged. It is much of its time and of its place and of the moment. And we've touched a little bit, kind of built up to this point. 
But it needs to be discussed, and I don't think it's fair to ignore that if you're going to talk about the Marx Brothers. So those were, that was the main reason I picked those two. My favorite set piece and the most problematic set piece. But what is a day at the races? It's another really bad framework, love story. Couple has no money, no future, no hope. The woman's going to lose the standard sanitarium unless she makes all this money by the end of the month. Her boyfriend thinks that it's a great idea to invest in a racehorse. And that sort of kicks off the plot, it, it, such as it is. And Chico works for her. Harpo is a jockey, ends up on the horse, of course. Because, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing introduced in a Marx Brothers film that is not resolved in a Marx Brothers film. There's nothing extraneous. There's no information you get that gives context that, that these exist outside of the hour and a half to two hours of a Marx Brothers film. It's just, they're just self-enclosed little bubbles. So this little bubble happens to be a sanitarium that needs money, a hack doctor, Margaret Dumont, and a horse race. To your point about sort of everything fitting together, I really like one of my favorite details of this movie was, and I caught it only as they were like getting to the part where they're transitioning into the actual titular day at the races was the realization, oh, Groucho is a, is actually a horse doctor and they're about to do horse races stuff. I was like, that is a hundred percent of plot contrivance, but like I didn't catch it until right before it was happening. So I was like, I, that was, I really liked the way that one came together. Yeah. But again, any fact that's introduced, they all tie together. They just, nothing, nothing disappears. But, um, I don't know. I don't know where I want to start with this. We we can ignore the love story. Um, Alan, what's his name? The singer who is also in their their prior film, A Night at the Opera. He's taken the place of Zeppo. He's the sort of straight love interest character. Um, Maureen O'Hara, lovely woman, proves to be a much better actress later in her career. The two of them have absolutely like negative chemistry. When they're on screen together, like you just want to leave them alone. You just think they want to leave each other alone. I'll make one interjection there. Um, Maureen O'Sullivan. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Wrong Maureen. <laughs> because if this were Maureen O'Hara, <laughs> I would have been way more into this movie. Than I Me was. too. Me too. But Maureen <laughs> O'Sullivan did go on to do much better stuff than she this. She did. She did as well. Um, yes. As did Maureen O'Hara. But I think, you know, if you want to also talk about like a starting place for where to talk about this. The, the the time frame and the move to MGM is what really, for me, sets this apart from all the RKO Paramount films, is that this is a film. This is a studio picture, much more so than any of the other stuff that we've talked about or that they've really done before. Um, and when you have chico playing kind of the sympathetic side character who helps helps the lover you know the lovers get together and and overcome the obstacles and when you have so much emphasis on that b story um when you really relegate groucho to kind of the sap role uh all of those things kind of as much as there are some good moments in this film the examination sequence this still feels very much like a film. And I realize that's not how I want to digest my Marx Brothers. 
That's interesting because I uh, like I'm not up on the the history of their move between studios. I think Chris, you were talking about in Duck Soup about how this felt more like a film, and to me, this is where I felt that where I could see that from the the outdoor sets to the the performances feeling more muted and more grounded from some of the Marx Brothers. It just felt like oh, they're they are actually like toning themselves down a bit to be in what is more recognizable as a movie and while looking back on it in the sense of well i have a lot of the older movies to go to but also this is this like change in direction where they're trying to like do what they do in a different context sort of a like a move like a black album ish move towards something that is more recognizable i guess or more commercially whatever like I, I don't know what the motivation was i actually thought it was fairly interesting on that maybe, maybe not like packed with jokes and if that's why you're here certainly that wouldn't be as uh as memorable but i actually thought trying to fit their thing into something that feels more obviously like a movie to me was something i thought was really cool like even the cat like the camera angles like it just feels like less i mean there's certainly like song and dance numbers it doesn't feel like a stage production in the way that the older the, or that the other movies no, we talked about. This it. is a Hollywood studio film. The camera moves. There are locations. It, I mean, it, it definitely feels like an NGM musical that they've put the Marx Brothers in. And while it, it definitely works, like I said, there are sequences. Eric, we got to talk about Tootsie Fritzy ice right. cream. <laughs> uh, but uh, and I at the same time, Again, as as the further we go along, that sense of unbridled anarchy dissipates. And I, I think the largest sin that this movie does, um, as much as I do enjoy it, is it neuters Groucho. Um, it, for the most part, neuters Chico. Harpo is... This is not Harpo's greatest moment, but if, if I was to point to something that kind of ties this really ties up my problems with it is that at the end Groucho gets with Margaret Dumont that's not supposed to happen in my Marx Brothers movies and it really at, at the end it just made me go you know what I got a couple really good scenes out of this but this is an MGM movie that they shoehorned the Marx Brothers into do we know that that's actually like I don't know that for a fact I know no. that once once they got out of their Paramount contract uh, MGM really fought, and and Eric talked about this. I can't remember if it was on the podcast or not, but Irving Thalberg was a huge champion for them, um, and and fought to get them over to M MGM, but uh, passed away, I believe, before this really got going. And it, it just it, it it is what it is. It's not terrible at all. It's a fine movie. It's interesting because the the Marx Brothers consider these the two MGM films. The Marx Brothers always considered them their best work. Because they're the most professional, right? They are certainly the most polished films of their career. And accessible, and, and the comedy is still them, but it isn't, it's not stagey. It's not over the top. Like, like even like Tootsie Fruitsy, it is important to note for both of these, both the, the two MGM films, A Night at the Opera, which preceded this, and Day at the Races, the Marx Brothers bits... The Tootsie Fruitsy, the anything where they had to where that they were working together to build their timing. They took those on the road to work those bits out in front of audiences before they made the films so that they could figure out what worked, what didn't, where the timing was, 
how they could tighten it up, where they needed to loosen it up, how to pace those sequences. So like Tootsie Fruitsy Ice Cream, they had done hundreds of times before they went to film it. So it was that sequence feels much more like it could have come from one of the plays. Yeah, it 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 feels it. That that sequence is is a hair hairs width away from coming off the rails, and it never does. And it doesn't because of to the point you made earlier, the repetition that it goes on as long as it does, and it becomes as convoluted as it does. It, it is probably the most classic performance in this movie. Uh, that that scene it, and it just it, it it is finally the point where you said it earlier where in every movie groucho is really just trying to tell chico just fuck you and i never he never gets there he he pretty much gets there with the tootsie fritzy scene it is hilarious well it's at the end of the tootsie fritzy scene is literally like if you can't beat him join him <laughs> join him like i can't like so many times like he knows the spacing and the timing of when chico pulls on the line one more time like he just waits just long enough and groucho waits just long enough to figure it out you've got that book yeah all the way through i mean it's funny this i i hadn't really thought about it for a while but when i was in high school i wanted to get a personalized license plate but i I'm incredibly cheap when it comes to that stuff. Like, why am I going to do that? <laughs> but the license plate that I've always wanted was ZVB XRPL. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, that's the code for the horse that he's trying to get all the code books to figure out. Is that, is that code? And it's just, it's such a lovely sequence and it's played out so perfectly. And when you, you know, even to the point of, as you're hearing what's going on with the bedding, when you hear them like close the bedding, when you hear them run the race and he's still like trying, wait, I don't have the breeder's book. I don't have the jockey book. Like each step along the way, I can't make change for you, which is I still, that's like the, the ultimate That's the kicker. best part. Here's a 10. Oh, I don't got change. Here's nine more books. <laughs> And he's putting it between his knees. The punchline is there. It's weird that they take it to a place where the joke continues with, oh, I bet on, um, I forget what the horse's name was, the horse that Groucho was originally going to bet on. And of course, Chico put the money on it and, and he, he wins. Well, and he puts the money on halfway through the joke. Right. And, and, and <laughs> it's weird that that's the end of the joke, but that's not where the, the natural, that's just like a tack on. The end of the joke is watching Groucho with all of the books between his knees and his arms and then just giving up. And then at the end going, just if it's the ice cream, and he starts to, if you can't beat him, join him to your point. And it's, it's, it's the classic moment in this film. It, it is wonderful. I think you mentioned that in a couple of places where someone gets one over on, on Groucho, that to me helps me feel a bit less, I guess, uh, awkward about some of his like more aggressive cruelties. Like when he, you know, says all of his one-liners and they're funny, but also really mean, but then other people are able to like get one, you know, pull, pull fast ones on him. I'm like, okay, like it's not, uh, there's the 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 pull, uh, sort of the back and forth between everyone uh, really helps 
to feel like Mark Groucher or Keith Groucher from just going f- so far beyond where I could follow him in terms of enjoying his performances. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. No, it makes total sense. But it's it's funny. We talked. I talked about this being an enclosed universe. Like it, it starts at the beginning of the movie and ends at the end of the movie and everything only exists here. The foreshadowing, like at the very beginning, the first time you see Hi-Hat, he flips out at Morgan's voice. So you have that boom. Okay, this is now going to be, and it keeps coming back four, five, six times. In that sequence, Chico talks about Tootsie Fruitsy ice cream. In that sequence, when they're introducing Hi-Hat, you you have this foreshadowing like boom is this going to come out these are the movie moments like chris was talking about this feels more like a movie they didn't bother to have setups in animal crackers things just happen there's no there's no you don't know there's going to be the mirror scene in in duck soup you don't know like there's nothing to say this leads to this leads to this this movie is much more conventional in hollywood in the fact that it does do those little things to get back to to Groucho getting stuff put over on him. It's important, I think, in the dynamic of the movies that Groucho and Chico constantly one gets ahead and then the other gets ahead. Then one and they go back and forth with each other. And Harpo, nobody gets one over on Harpo. Like Harpo constantly pulls tricks on them. And and Harpo typically doesn't have like ambitions for his characters he's just sort of he just sort of yeah like agent of chaos sort of goes wherever you know his will takes him and and because he's not trying to do anything no one ever really thinks to or no one is ever really successful in trying to you know to get one over on him right i mean he's got ingrown balloons (laughs) (laughs) like like that whole sequence harpo pulls one over on both of them at the same time and Chico's sort of supposed to be his accomplice, but he gets caught up in helping Groucho and Harpo's, you know, blowing balloons. And then like, let me pop that. And his, the, he bends over and, and Groucho thinks it's a balloon, but it's his head. <laughs> like, like how did this, how did his tongue get so hairy? <laughs> There's something about, and it, this is, I mean, the, the proof is in this recording. These films succeed so well that a couple of days later i i can't you'll bring up a reference like that i i can't help but laugh there is a timelessness to how specific the jokes and the comedy is in these films and and it's one thing that i've i've said this in other kind of genres of art music specifically but um people make the mistake of thinking that generalities are universal when in point of fact, the more specific you can get to a point, the more universal those things become. And I, I, I find that to be the case with the Marx Brothers, where they'll do things that are so specific and unique to them. And those are the things that I think reach the broadest audience possible because they touch on these wonderful little kind of small things like like that that point with harpo and groucho that that just make it even days later it's going to cause me to laugh as i think back on it because it's so specific there's like three sequences that i think of in this film that that i truly love there's the tootsie fritzy one there's margaret dumont's medical examination yes which we do have to talk about and there's the winter festival which starts out with the incredibly boring ass song and the like non choreography choreography. Like it's just sort of people sort of kind of moving. 
but then you get Groucho dancing. And the song that they're playing is we La Cucaracha. <laughs> right? He's doing a tango to La, Cuchara- La Cucaracha that then, that then segues to shave and a haircut to bits. And he's dancing with that blonde woman that's, that a, you find out afterwards is a setup. But as he's dancing with Margaret Dumont and he's yelling, change partners, and jumps over to dance with <laughs> oh the other goodness. woman. <laughs> the way that he does it too is change partners. He's doing that amazing kind of side voice. That is brilliant. And the and the timing of dance changing partner, like not. I mean, yes, the way he calls that out is so good. But I also really like the timing of like just waiting just long enough and keeping. Okay, they're looking upset. Now I'm gonna do it. Like the timing on switching between partners every time is just. I mean, it's 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 you know a juggler. It's a you know plate spinning. It's uh, it's just real good. Yeah, it's it's a magical little scene, and it's not one that I think gets talked about, but it's. It might be Groucho's peak moment in this movie where he gets to be Groucho. He yeah. he mo- he gets to move like Groucho. He gets to dance like Groucho. Nobody dances like Groucho. No one does. We got to talk about that. His <laughs> dancing in this sequence is sublime. You, you you would not think, I mean, you've seen him do little pieces. He's done little pieces in the, the, the other two films we talked about, but Specific to to Groucho in this film, there is a weird sort of grace in the way that he carries off his dance moves. That is like nothing I've ever seen. It, it is phenomenal in this film. I think that also like uh, goes to a previous point of like the the dancing adding to the music, adding to the comedy of things that you don't need but are just really nice to have on top. Just sort of fleshes out sort of and makes you or fleshes out them as performers and just sort of makes you appreciate sort of the sheer breadth and uh, depth of what they're capable of. Well, they needed something, right? Because they went from, so they went from, and I have the, um, I have the thing open. I'm trying to remember his name, but uh, Alan Jones, Gil, Gil does his vocal number, right? Because he's always talking about, I'll make money in my nightclub act. They go from that to the ballet dance piece, which, really almost kills the movie to have those two pieces come one right after the other. My understanding, just kind of reading through Wikipedia and other places is that they kind of, they tinted those scenes so that to the audience, there was probably a bit of a rush of seeing the tints there. But I mean, it almost kills the movie dead until we have probably yeah next to the examination and next to tootsie fruity ice cream the best moment in the film which is groucho trying to make eyes and 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 set up a a a midnight rendezvous with the other woman while he's dancing with margaret dumont and and just the way that he's able to use his peculiar and particular physicality to do these incredible dances and at the same time make overtures to the other woman is is what saves this movie at the end for me uh it it, it just makes it because I'll, I'll i'll still say throughout the rest of the movie groucho gets short shrift he he is the sap in this movie and i don't like that but this moment and the moments that follow after where you find out that she's a spy and, and uh, Chico and Harpo are trying to save him from, you know, from getting caught. Um, that is where he becomes purely Groucho again. And it becomes the films that I fell in love with. Yeah, there is 
one little callback within this sequence because it goes immediately to to Chico and Harpo's performance pieces. But Chico ends his little piano bit with shave and a haircut, two bits, which is again a callback to the beginning of this dance number. Again, this tight little circle that is this film. So, uh, yeah, let's talk about racist garbage. How's that for an intro? <laughs> uh, there, there is one part of this film that we have alluded to um, several times that we have not talked about. And that is the random, unnecessary section that is the Gabriel blow your horn in the never before mentioned african-american slum that is right outside the sanitarium uh yeah 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 the thing okay so i'll just relay my experience of this which was once it started happening i found myself immediately going like to rewind it and go wait a minute like you were talking about the sort of the setup and the payoff and everything like I, I immediately rewound it to go like, wait, why is this happening? Like, where was this set up? Like, wh- what is the occasion for them being in this slum and breaking into song and dance? Like, how does that work? And I still probably couldn't tell you, like, even mechanically how it functions in the movie. No, there isn't, there isn't a way to explain it. There's no introduction of any of the characters prior to the sequence. There are no African-American characters in this film. There's no indication that they were friends with them and this was a logical place to hide hi-hat there's there's none of that it just occurs because and the shame of it is the number the performance number with harpo when they're doing gabriel it's an amazing performance it's a lovely sequence and until they have the sheriff show up there is nothing offensive about the sequence it's amazing. And if they could have just put in, I don't know, 20 seconds to predicate why they're there and why the horse is there, it would function perfectly fine because it's, it's a great performance number. It's a great dance number. It's a great song. And then blackface. Blackface. <laughs> yeah. And like, and they put on blackface cause they're trying to, av- like they're trying to avoid the sheriff, right? Like that's the, that's the that's the bit is they're with a bunch of african-americans and so they put on blackface so that they won't notice because why is the sheriff chasing after them again they haven't paid the bill for the feed right so the sheriff is 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 coming to get them and and yeah it is very much uh they're only in the slum to do the blackface gag to hide from the sheriff when he comes yeah i i think eric i agree that like my I thought the the actual musical number itself was was well done and I was like, "Oh wow, this is really cool." And then the way that the they're shot while they're in blackface, it almost like you rarely see like close-ups of their face or like it's almost a it's like kind of a little bit pulled back and always at weird angles. So like I actually had to like look at it for a while and like rewind a few times just to confirm. I was like, "That looks like blackface." Are they actually doing blackface? And of course, they're doing blackface. We have to talk about it because it's in the movie. Harpo does half blackface, which is also, again, like, I don't know. I mean, it fits character wise. It fits with Harpo. But at the same time, is it Harpo saying this is bullshit? Like as a as a actor, he's just done this amazing number with these these people. And then he's going to, 
he decides to do a literal half his face, but not top. Like he does, I think the left side of his face, he does blackface and he doesn't do it on the right side of his face. And it's just for a, it's for a quick gag. I mean, literally it's for a three seconds or five seconds of the film. They have this, all this set up to do a five second gag that isn't necessary at all. Like they could have not done that gag and the whole sequence still works. It doesn't explain why there's this slum outside the sanitarium that is hitherto unmentioned. We just wanted to have a song and dance number that was a contemporary song and dance number instead of like that thing that Alan did that was just like, oh, that faux operatic thing. Well, and like in... And most of their song and dance numbers throughout their movies don't really have a lot of setup. Like there's like, it's just now it's time for us to sing a song and you accept it because that's what you do. Like, I don't think there needs to be any sort of like, you could have done that number in a bunch of different ways that didn't require them to go down that specific path. They could have just had a number because, right? Right. So they're, so it's 1937. They're, seven they're nine years away from al jolson and jazz singer and i mean it it just it it feels like one of those things where it's an accepted kind of gag at the time so they threw it in there which is a weird for the the thing that really bothered me about it more than anything else is i i can kind of set my sensibilities aside and say okay look this is a period of of its time so I guess it was something that was on the table. But when you have the Marx Brothers who have have such a, a stack of things that can do to be funny, to resort to something like this, it, it is one of those moments that just kind of take you out and go, oh, you know, they're not talking about something that's particularly topical or of, of the day with the gag. Eric, to your point, there's nothing there that really kind of sets a precedent before. And for being a studio picture where everything pays off, there's no setup to this at all. Beyond the fact that they have been hiding hi-hat, you know, in different places throughout the movie. He was in um, Groucho's closet at one point. Now, apparently, he's here. It's an odd false note in their filmography that, that I, I, I have a hard time kind of reconciling. And I'm certainly no expert uh, on blackface being a, you know, th- early 30s white Canadian man. Um, but we leave that to Trudeau. Yeah. Oh, God. You know what? I'm I was so sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. That fuck. I wasn't you walked even into that one. <laughs> but the thing is, it's not even a burn on me. So I don't even mind. Like, I was like, oh, shit, I set you up so good. And not at all. yeah, not no, at all. it was good. I love it. I love it. But. My like what I do understand of it is that the way that they use it isn't even in the way that like it was specifically used so that they wouldn't be noticed, which is not my very limited understanding of what blackface usually fulfilled as a function, right? Because it was usually they wanted to make fun of black people or give roles, black roles to non-black actors. And like in in those cases, it's not how that is used like it, it feels off in terms of its usage. So like, like again, why bother? Well, in a way it gives it some cover if you want to call it that, because it is, it, they're literally using it to fool the white guy, right They're yeah. to fool the authority, to put one over. And that's not traditionally, as you said, how it's used, but it is of its time. I and mean, there, there are tons of classic movies from this era that have, 
blackface sequences, and some of them come from from better places, like Swing Time has the the Bojangles, yeah, which is a tribute to to his friend Bill Robinson. But it's a just at the same time a horrific blackface image that he uses to set that up. That's Fred Astaire and Swing Time. That's I I I just sort of shorthanded it there and realized I didn't give the setup as to what that context was. <laughs> And that's, I believe, the same year. I think that's 36 or 37 for Swing Time. And then in 39, um, in Holiday Inn, there's, which I don't know if you guys are familiar with, but that's Bing Crosby and, and Fred Astaire, and it was remade as White Christmas. But in Holiday Inn, they have a song, they do songs for all the holidays, and Bing does a blackface number for President's Day. <laughs> That's all about Abraham Lincoln and the, the, he freed, literally says he freed the darkies. Oh, and oh. if you haven't seen that number, this is Bing Crosby was a very progressive guy who, yeah. who, who pulled Louis Armstrong onto it, all of his shows that he could was very much like highlighting African-American musicians, but he still did this number and it is egregiously horrible. Like it's it's a number that like people don't believe exists until you see it and then you go, holy fuck! Because there's no other. It's the only. You need to see this, John. You need to look it up. It's on YouTube. Everyone needs to see this to say we are better than that as people, and even our our people that we hold up to having good idea ideals at their time and who are progressive people are still a product of their time. The Marx Brothers at this point, Chico's forty nine years old. When they make this movie, these guys grew up in minstrel era vaudeville in the T, you know, in the, the aughts, the original aughts. I don't know. I, I hate how are you supposed to return to the early 1900s and the teens? I guess <laughs> they grew up with that. Like it's contemporaneous to experience that they grew up with and understood and was part of the vaudeville structure that they came up in. They probably, you know, I don't think this is meant mean spirited. I don't think this is a cruel use of, of blackface, but it's an utterly unnecessary one. And yeah. it, it's just a real wrong note in a movie that has very, very few wrong notes. And nothing is as catastrophic as this. I was thinking about it, the movie as a whole in terms of my appreciation for its attempt to do a more conventional type film. Because, hey, if they, you know, if, if it's in terms of them stretching out their capabilities or trying to do something more ambitious then i can certainly respect that but if it's not if it's not sort of hitting all their strengths as as chris uh has has talked about in this conversation or if it's not like as doing all the things that they're so good at if it's not as successful um and then you also have that number then you know by all means, you know, watch it as a as a curiosity. But that one, even more than like the couple of jokes in Duck Soup that are similarly uh, of that of that time, I think here it's it feels it it hangs it hangs a bit heavier for me on this one. Absolutely, and uh, yeah, just go watch Tootsie Fruitsy Ice Cream on YouTube, I guess. And go watch the examination sequence, which we didn't really talk about, but is but it's absolutely lovely. Yeah. I, I still think it's important to see these films. This oh, is a sure, yeah. a misstep, and I think I think we 
as a culture, we do not do a good job of acknowledging our missteps. Like the hardest thing for us as a culture is to admit that we were wrong. And if you hide stuff, if like Disney, you just bury Song of the South forever, you're never going to, to understand the place that it came from and learn from that. If you can't acknowledge it existed and it happened, you can't learn. So watch these movies. Watch, I mean, this is a good film. There's a lot of really good stuff in here. It's a big budget Marx Brothers film. But understand that there's this, this moment that does them no good, <laughs> particularly the Marx Brothers. Yeah. But, it, but don't pretend it didn't happen. And you can still enjoy the movie despite it. I will still watch this movie a couple times a year. I'll still watch Swing Time. I'll still watch Holiday Inn. I acknowledge that there are problems with it and that those problems could be disqualifying for some people. And that's okay. I'm more willing to say this is good despite this. I agree. It, I, I, I think if anything, it, I'll amend this to your conversation, Eric, which I, I think was, was more than uh, to the point and succinct. But one of the things that I really did with these movies was experience them with, with my family. I've talked in numerous episodes about how movies of this period really tied me to my father. And there's an opportunity here, particularly with this movie to have, to, to not shy away from those darker moments and use them as a teaching point and a, and a point of illumination have see this, this movie acknowledge that this piece is there and have the conversation around it. Understand the context in which is why in, 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 in which it was presented, understand what it means, understand what it means to you in the context of the way we consume media and the way that we interact with communities and culture now and, and, and don't shy away from it because that, that is something that, again, speaking as American, so John, take your own take on it, is there is a certain reluctance to admit wrongdoing or to brush that stuff under the table or under the, the, the carpet and that doesn't do anybody any favors. And to Eric, your point, there are some amazing sequences here that should still see the light of day. Just be cognizant of the other pieces that are there and be prepared to kind of wrestle with that either on your own or if you're watching with others to have those conversations so we don't have those pieces again. The reality is, is that there's not meaningful enough difference. Uh, like it, it, there's some of the specifics are different, but the spirit of a lot of things that we're talking about are obviously just as prevalent uh and as problematic uh up here uh if the specific examples of them end up being slight like different in a way that can trip people up so certainly canada i mean you made that very very amazingly accidentally set up joke about trudeau like obviously we're not uh, uh obviously we're not you know absolved of of anything we're all there we we all have those things that we have to have to confront and it's better to confront them than brush them under the table especially if they go down so easily with the wit and wisdom of the marx brothers and now we're at the uh one of my favorite as always segments of the podcast where we just recommend movies that we like and generally speaking we aim for stuff that's related but in all honesty for myself at least uh uh i 
don't really have a lot of comparable stuff that I'm familiar with that I could recommend. So I thought about it more along the lines of what are the feelings I get from Marx Brothers movies and where can I find those feelings replicated elsewhere? And there was a couple of examples that came up for me. One was uh, a pair of comedies from uh, Armando Iannucci, uh, In the Loop and Death of Stalin. Uh, They're both political comedies and uh, political satires and the I really like specifically just sort of the incredible writing and rapid pace of dialogue um, in both of those movies. They, uh, that remind, like, and, and I got that feeling a bit from watching the Marx Brothers. It just sort of, they move really fast. Um, but what those movies aren't always is just sort of, I mean, there's a little bit of it, but it feels kind of a bit too highbrow and lacks that sort of slapstick silliness that I really find just absolutely adorable in something like MacGruber. Um, it is a movie that is silly and like, it's probably like the smartest dumb movie, if that makes sense. Like it is incredibly smart about how dumb it is. And uh, and I mean that in like the most loving and endearing terms possible. And a, a lot of the jokes that I do like from these movies are movies that are like super smart, but just like, like there, there's nothing that's like highbrow about them. It's, you know, so those, those are my, those are my two uh, sets of recommendations for this. Chris, you, uh, do you got something? I have, yeah. In fact, I have two recommendations. So um, in, in keeping with what drew me to the Marx Brothers originally, um, the verbal wit of Groucho, the way that dialogue can be so incredibly rapid fire, um, I'm going to start with an older film and then I'll go to a newer film. So the first film I'm going to recommend is The Palm Beach Story um, by Preston Sturgis. Um, a lot of people know Preston Sturges from Sol- from Sullivan's Travels, which is probably the most famous of his films, just because it is so tied into the concept of film and directing. But for my money, the Palm Beach story is the better movie. Um, it is a wickedly sharp screwball comedy. Um, Claudette Colbert, Joe McRae, who is also from Sullivan's Travels, and it's about a, a married couple um, who are kind of at the end of their marriage and want to get a divorce and what happens around that. And I, I, I don't want to get too much into it because part of the joy is seeing how Sturgis who wrote and directed this, how he, you know, to the point we talked about with, with the Marx brothers, this guy can write a script where everything pays off on everything else. And the, the repartee between McRae and, and Colbert is phenomenal. Um, it's, it's, it's one of those things that once you see it, you're going to have a smile on, on your face and, and it, it's going to just, it's going to work. So I can't recommend that enough. Um, going in a slightly more modern take, but still keeping to the idea of the screwball comedies of the thirties. Um, I don't know how you guys feel about this. So feel free to, to chime in. If you've seen it is the 1998 film, the imposters with Stanley Tucci and Oliver Platt. Um, uh, they had really kind of come to fame in, in, in numerous things, but they had done um, the big night previous to this, which is a fantastic movie. Can't recommend enough, but it's not a screwball comedy. The imposters very much takes, the um the tropes of the marx brothers and laurel and hardy and and abbott and costello and and just builds this farce uh which is 
which is wonderful and has sequences to this day I still play out with my family with uh, show me lion face lemon face lion face lemon face you know show me disturbed <laughs> and and just 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 the way that this that this team kind of plays against each other it is beautiful um it is visually stunning in the way that their their comedy works non-verbally when they do verbal comedy it works really well um it is a a killer's row of talent stanley tucci oliver platt i'm gonna go through a couple more names here alfred molina is in this lee taylor is in this tony shalhoub is in this um steve buscemi is in this hope davis allison janney richard jenkins um isabella rossellini is in this camel scott is in this um it's just it, it's a fantastic modern movie that really more than a lot of other films really in imbibes the the spirit of those 30 movies um so those are my two picks well i've been thinking about it and it's it's tough for me because i don't it's hard for me to say anything really can capture the spirit of the marx brothers i mean you can you can touch on the verbalness you can touch on the slapstick you can touch on the sort of anarchic comedy but very very few things have all of that tied together and particularly in a, in i also think that the sort of you have to kind of talk about a framework that doesn't work either or framework that's just barely there to in, in order to to highlight that and i'm gonna i'm gonna recommend a film that is surreal and strange and a a, a movie that uh, my in-laws turned me on to in the 90s because I'd never heard of it at the time. It's now become a little bit of a cult classic, but at the time it was pretty unknown. And that is Putney Swope, which is Robert Downey Se- Sr. Um, I believe it's 1970, 69, 70 in that era. And it's ostensibly kind of a comedy about an advertising agency but there's stuff that just makes no sense that just seems out of left field. There's a midget president. I'm sorry, a little person president, but he's referred to as a midget. So please don't yell at me. I know it's a little person, but the, it has the, just a surreal sense of, of humor about it. It's got lots of non sequitur kind of comedic moments and it doesn't hang together as a film at all, which is also, I think, really part of the tradition. And I'm going to recommend a non-film by a, a f- actor or a, a man who became known as one of the great comedic, act- comedic actors. And I think the, the only person I can put on a Groucho Chico level, and that is Spike Milligan. Spike Milligan was uh, part of the Goon Show in the early 50s in England, which was the biggest influence on the Pythons, et cetera, et cetera. He's in several of the Python films. But he wrote a series of war diaries and his war diaries are in his comedic voice talking about his experiences in World War II. And he recorded the audiobooks of his war diaries where he acts out all the characters. He <laughs> does all the voices for everyone and he recorded them as he was writing them. So they were recorded over a period of like 30 years from the late 60s, early 70s till not long before he died in the late nineties. So as he's telling these stories, you know, as his, as his life gets more serious and he gets older, his voice gets older and it changes. And I don't think I've ever laughed as loud as I've laughed at the, as at the war diaries. And it's a wonderful thing. If you put on an audiobook, you're listening to them and you're on your headset and you're just 
laughing out loud and people look at you very strangely. But please, Spike Milligan's War Diaries. Can't recommend them enough. But I also think I like all the all your picks better than mine. So we'll go with that. <laughs> well, to be fair, we did give you uh, absolutely no notice. Uh, and so that is entirely understandable. Though that does the... Spike Milligan War uh, War Diaries sounds like a lot of fun, and I would definitely want to track that one down for sure. I am already doing that. Well, I think that'll probably do it for us uh, today. Eric, thanks so much for hanging out with us. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, sir. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Anything you want to? Anything you want to shout out? Your Twitter. Your label. Or we we did mention that stuff. We mentioned all that stuff. I'm at Easy Snap and. Uh, probably the easiest way to track me down is there. Advanced warning, basically like a third of my tweets are really horrible dad jokes and puns. And um, so if that's your thing, I'm your man. <laughs> I would only amend that to say that they are wonderful dad puns and jokes and that they are they bring light into my life and Aww. don't ever change. So just to call out again, Eric Marks, our, our second... Uh, guest on on the show but he also fills out our uh noise band uh conglomerate vip uh he is the first h in vip jeremy hunt who was on the previous episode is the second h and we have a new volume of our weird kind of brian and brian eno-ish oblique structures volume out uh right now volume three where we uh actually took a raw drum track from a friend of ours, Josh Thieler of Slaves BC, and manipulated it and butchered it into weird soundscapes. So go and check that out. Uh, But Eric, again, can't thank you enough for being on the show. We have already talked about additional episodes that we want to have you on. So uh, hopefully you will uh, be back sooner rather than later to talk about some other stuff regarding movies. I hope so, too. Thank you for having me on. And, and hopefully next time I'll, I'm a little less verbose. No, no, not at all. Absolutely not. I forbid <laughs> yes. that. You must be as verbose as possible. Oh. Alrighty. Well, I think that'll be, uh, I think that'll do it for us. We'll catch everyone next time. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.